Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. So this morning I want to share with you, uh, I've entitled my sermon, Un- Unmasking the Treasure. And uh, um, <clears throat> this this chapter that we've been dealing with in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, Paul starts off the chapter by saying, since we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. And then that's in, in chapter 4 verse 1, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1. And then in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, he ends the chapter, towards the end of the chapter, he also again says, we do not lose heart. And, and that's a big part of what this chapter is all about. And what I want to share with you this morning is that if we don't understand our human frailty and weakness in light of the gospel, we will lose heart. We will be discouraged and we'll be tempted to give up because we're, we are frail, we're human, we're mortal. We stumble, we fall. And if we don't understand that human frailty in light of the gospel, we will lose heart. But... If we understand our human frailty and weakness in light of the gospel, rather than losing heart, we'll take heart. We'll be encouraged. And we'll realize that our human frailty does not undermine God's plan for us and God's purposes for us. In fact, God uses it. God uses it. So I'm hoping that what I'm going to share with you this morning will be very encouraging to you. Um, I mean, we, we've been looking at how, uh, in the last couple of weeks and months, how uh, Paul was focusing on the glory of his ministry, the glory of the new covenant, the glory of the gospel that is, uh, you know, ministered through, through his ministry. But today, in, in the por- portion of Scripture we're going to look at today, Paul says, okay, just so that you don't think that this glory and this power of this gospel ministry comes from me, I want to just make it clear. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's, it's in our human frailty that we have this treasure. And in fact, that was the main reason why there was this conflict between Paul and the super apostles because they said, no, if you have such a powerful ministry, then you yourself must be powerful. You must appear to be powerful. You must look powerful. You must look impressive. You cannot look weak and, and, and broken and, and unsuccessful and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you, you're, there cannot be a contrast between how you look and your nature and the message that you preach. And Paul is saying, no, in fact, there must be that contrast. There must be that contrast. In order for the message to look its most powerful, I, in some ways, have to look weak and frail and fragile. It's necessary. So um, let's read that, that uh, portion of Scripture in Second Corinthians 4 from verse 7 to 12. I'm reading from the NIV, and it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show... To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And part of what I want to show you through this passage is that a gospel-shaped life will be gospel-shaped. Okay, now some of you say, didn't you just repeat yourself there? (laughs) Think about it carefully, okay? I want you to get this because this is actually very powerful um, and and, and very important for us to get. A gospel-shaped life will be gospel-shaped. In other words, a life that is shaped by the gospel will be shaped like the gospel, okay? A life that is shaped by the gospel will be shaped like the gospel. I'm going to just share four things with you. I'm going to share that, that paradox, that contrast or paradox um, of gospel ministry, why that paradox is always true, what it's based on, what the paradox is based on, and why the paradox is actually good news to us. So, implied in this, when it says in that first verse, um, that we have this treasure in jars of clay, What's implied is, what Paul is really saying is, he was saying before that, we have a treasure inside of us. But, I want to qualify that, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Okay, So I don't want you to miss the fact that Paul is saying we have a treasure inside of us. There's a treasure that God has placed inside of us. He says, we have this treasure. What is this treasure that we have? What does it refer to? Well, I think it refers to, to what comes before. It, it refers to what precedes uh, immediately. Um, in, in, for instance, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And then in verse 6, he says, the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Can you just maybe bring up that um, passage, uh, Tuba, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Um, and... That is the treasure that is inside of us. This treasure, it says in verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of, the, of God's glory displayed in the face of, of Christ. So this treasure is the gospel and everything that comes with it. Notice that the gospel is light. God's light, His light shining in our hearts. His glory inside of us. His image inside of us. But it's also knowledge. It says the light of the knowledge. In other words, the gospel isn't just a feeling. The gospel is actually a message. You know, so often, um, especially us as charismatic Christians, you know, we, 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 we sometimes make the mistake of saying, we're all about transformation, not information, which is partially right. Yes, ultimately, we want to see transformation. And we read in the end of the previous chapter, it talks about um, as we, we become what we behold, as we're gazing at Jesus, we become like him, we transform to be like him into the same image. So there is transformation. But what this verse is saying is that transformation happens through information. You see, the problem is you can have information without transformation, but you cannot have transformation without information. <laughs> okay? So there's a learning that needs to happen. There's knowledge that you need to receive, information that you need to receive, 
so that you can receive that transformation uh, of the gospel. But what Paul is saying is that uh, that, tr- that, that gospel message, the, 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 no- the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ Jesus, uh, the image of God, who is the image of God imprinted on us, the glory of God inside of us. And, and he's, we also read how he spoke about the Spirit of God living inside of us, that it's all by the Holy Spirit. He's saying the gospel and all of that that comes with the gospel, the transformation, the presence of God, the glory of God, the image of God, all of that is this treasure, is a treasure that God has deposited inside of us. And if you think about it, it's a massive treasure. It's a massive treasure because the glory of God and, in fact, the presence of God, God himself, the gospel is God's self-giving, God giving himself to us. In other words, inside of us lives someone, something that is worth more than all of creation. All of the gold, all of the silver, all of the diamonds. I mean, there are probably planets out there made mostly out of diamond. (laughs) Somewhere in the galaxy, I don't know, somewhere in the universe. Suns, moons, untold riches in terms of resources. What is inside of us is worth more than all of that put together. Don't miss the fact that there's a treasure, a massive treasure inside of you. Now, it says, but, but, that treasure is in jars of clay. It's in, in, in fragile containers. Now, in those days, treasures were, were often hidden in, uh, or, or buried. Uh, for instance, in, in Matthew 13, verse 40, 44, Jesus tells a parable. He says, um, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then um, in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought the field. So, I mean, in those days, banking wasn't as big as it is today. So you couldn't just go and deposit your treasure at the bank. You, you, you put it into a container and you buried it somewhere in your property. And then sometimes what happened is, you know, people, you know, either died or so, and then that treasure was there, you know, it was hidden there. And, and, and um, you know, so, so this kind of situation um, happened often. In fact, I was reading on, on uh, CNN's website that a couple of years ago, a, a guy somewhere in England um, called Dave, Dave Crisp, he was walking around with a metal detector. You know, he, he was one of those guys, you know, looking for treasure, a treasure hunter. And he was walking around with a metal detector, and he found 21 coins, which, uh, which you know, when he looked at them, you could see they were quite ancient coins, Roman coins. Um, they, they had a, some of them had an imprint of um, Marcus Aurelius on them. So that's before 300 AD, you know, that's how old they were. And as he kept looking around, he, he found the rest of, 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 of this treasure, uh, and it turned out to be a clay pot, a big Can you maybe just bring up that picture um, of the clay pot with the a, with a old ancient coins in it? Um, a clay pot with more than 52,000 ancient Roman coins in it, worth more than a million dollars. So he, 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 when, he, when he dug this up, he, he realized, okay, this is a bit beyond my ability to handle, so he called some archaeologists and stuff in, and they... Um, they helped him sort of dig it up, and they took it to the, um, 
the museum, the British Museum, and, and cleaned it up and so on. So, so this thing often, this kind of thing often happened. Every, almost every single archaeological dig that has ever been made has found pottery. It was probably the most common material used as a container because it was cheap. Literally dirt cheap. <laughs> and that's the whole point. It's the contrast between this precious treasure, which is the content, and the dirt cheap material with which the container is made. And if you think about it, I mean, Paul is, is not just using it to make that contrast, but it's, it's theological as well. Um, like a, this pot of clay that we saw that David Crisp found with the, with the coins in, um, we are also made of the same common material, dirt. The Bible says in uh, Genesis 2 verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And just like that pot decays and, and becomes dust again, so God says the same will happen to us. In, in Genesis 3 verse 19, it says, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Okay? And uh, in, in Lamentations 4 verse 2, it says, uh, How the precious ch- uh, children of Zion worth uh, once worth a weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the worker of a potter's hand. We are those jars of clay. In fact, the, 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 the Greek terms there translated jars of clay in the NIV, uh, it doesn't say jars specifically. It, it, there's a more general term that is used, vessels, which can refer to anything that's a container, but it can also refer to anything that's used as an instrument, even a person. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's actually used in the Bible for persons, for people as well. So it, it's, it says earthen vessels, literally. And that is exactly what we are. We are earthen vessels, containers of a great treasure. Now, I just want you to think about this um, treasures in jars of clay for a moment. So often we allow the fact of the frailty, the brokenness, the relative, you know, lack of value or um, commonality of the vessel to prevent us from putting the treasure on display. Have you ever said, oh, you know, God can't use me. You know, just look at me, you know, I'm pretty useless or I'm... I'm not that faithful to him, or I'm not that impressive. Have you ever done that? Just, just close your eyes and think for a moment the times when you allowed the fact that you are a vessel of clay, a jar of clay, to prevent you from boldly being used by God. Just close your eyes. Just think of, of, a, of, a, of um, when that has ever happened in your life. You see, what what Paul was saying was, because we sometimes think guys like Paul didn't feel like that. They didn't feel unworthy. They didn't feel like, you know, they didn't struggle with feelings of being unworthy. But Paul is saying, I'm a jar of clay. They didn't feel weak. Paul felt weak all the time. 
He says so. He says, I came to you in weakness and in fear in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1. I came to you in weakness and in fear. We think that, that, that you need to feel powerful and indestructible you know, to be an to, to effective minister. And Paul says, no, actually you need to feel fragile and frail and weak. Then you can be a powerful and effective gospel minister. You see, just a few contrasts I want to um, highlight for you between the, the treasure and the jar of clay. Firstly, there's a, there's, a, there's a contrast in value. Okay? The value of the vessel, clay, it's dirt. It's dirt cheap. It's worth nothing. We walk on the dirt <laughs> that earthen vessels are made of. Okay? Contrast that with a treasure placed inside of it, um, like that treasure that was found, and, and many other treasures like it in, in earthen vessels like that. Um, so there's a contrast in the value, but there's also a contrast in the durability, the relative durability of the treasure made of metal, silver, gold, diamonds, whatever, and the clay pot, which is easily broken. It's, it's brittle. It's fragile. You know, you drop it or you throw it to the ground and it breaks or it cracks. And then also the power in this case specifically. Um, you know, an empty vessel has no power. It, the only power it has is the power to contain and to convey, to carry something around in. It's the thing inside that has the power in this case and in our case, the gospel. That's where the power lies. And, and Paul even says that. He says... The gospel, and, and the amazing thing is here, Paul says, so that we can know that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Notice what he says there. Firstly, he talks about power, and the, the Greek word for power, we, you might know, is dunamis. The same word where we get our word dynamite from. So it's explosive power. It's, 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 it's power that, 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 that is powerful, that can... Can, can do powerful things. But, it, but he, he uses the word from which we get the, the word hyperbole, hyperbole uh, in the Greek, hyperbole, all-surpassing. So he's saying this power that is inside of us is hyperbolic power. It's all-surpassing power. Not only do you carry the greatest treasure Known to man inside of you, the most valuable treasure. You carry the greatest power inside of you. Yes, you are a jar of clay. Yes, you are a fragile vessel. But let me tell you what. There's power inside of you that is greater than the power of the sun, than the power of an exploding supernova. That is, it's all surpassing power. In other words, it's the greatest power known to man. That is inside of us. Now, that means, you know, you've heard the saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a present, a gift by its wrapping. Don't judge a treasure by its con a container. <laughs> don't judge the treasure that's inside of you by yourself as the container. The container does not reflect the nature of the treasure. The nature of the treasure is contrasted to the nature of the container. Yes, the container is relatively common and valueless, relatively endurable, breakable, fragile. Um, 
relatively powerless. But in contrast to that, the treasure inside is very valuable, very durable. It will last forever. Very powerful. It can transform lives. It can, it can ultimately transform all of creation, and it will. Okay. Um, so we see this paradox between the treasure and the earthen vessels that contain it. But why is this paradox necessary? Um, Paul says, uh, talks about to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, Paul is saying here that an impressive container might distract from the impressiveness of the content because the people who see the container might focus on the container rather than on the content. But if you have a relatively unimpressive container, then you can focus much better on the content. And that's why Paul's saying these super apostles, you know, they present themselves as these impressive containers, very successful, no problems, no weaknesses, no mistakes, uh, you know, and they co they, they're constantly accusing me, Paul, of, oh, he's not successful enough, he's not blessed enough, he struggles, you know, with weakness, with, with poverty, you know, he's being persecuted the whole time, he runs around and sleeps in the field because, you know, there's always someone chasing him and he doesn't have a place to live, and, and look at him, you know, he's all, you know, bow-legged and he's not very handsome and he's not very impressive in his speech, he's not very eloquent, Look at us, you know, we're so successful, we're rich, and we never struggle with anything, etc. And Paul is saying, it's because I'm not an impressive container that I emphasize the impressiveness of the content, of the treasure inside of me. Um, so just... Just like the reflected light of the moon most, is most visible during the darkest night, so the reflected glory of the gospel is most visible when painted on a dark canvas. Think about this for a moment. If you're going to paint glory, light, bright, shining, you're not going to paint it on a white picture because then it won't stand out. But if you paint it on a dark page, on a dark background, it stands out all the brighter. If you're going to paint great strength, it stands out, it's emphasized more when it's painted against the backdrop on a canvas of great weakness. Uh, I remember hearing a story once of, of two um, famous painters being commissioned to, to paint the, the theme of peace. And, and the one painted this tranquil, tranquil scene with, with no wind blowing, you know, just a nature scene, you know, and everything is tranquil and, and beautiful. Um, and that was his portrayal of peace. The other one and, and painted a picture which was very much contrasted with that, and, and which um, was a, a picture of a massive storm with, with winds blowing, rain, thunder, lightning, you know, the wind being so powerful that it's ripping branches off the trees. You know, in the midst of all the storm and this turmoil, you know, under a little ledge, uh, a, a, a bird had made a, a nest and it was sitting there, you know, sort of sheltered underneath sheltered from the storm underneath this, you know, in, 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 under, under this rock. And, and that was his portrayal of peace. And, and that second one was the one that really grabbed people's attention and grabbed their hearts and their imagination because it was peace in the midst of trouble, contrasted, painted against the backdrop of turmoil and storm. And Paul is saying that is how our lives are supposed to look. Great power painted on a canvas of great weakness. 
resurrection life painted on a canvas of human mortality and death. And, and, and he says, in everything, um, the, the NIV doesn't translate it very well because it says, um, you know, we are, let me just read it again. It says in verse 10, we always, no, sorry, verse 8. It says, we are afflicted in every way. And that in every way actually comes at the beginning of the sentence, and it's in Greek, en panti, in everything, literally in everything. He's not just saying, um, you know, we, we are afflicted um, in every way. He says, in every way we are, number one, afflicted, but not uh, crushed. Um, we, are, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, uh, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. All four of those things, we are in everything. Um, and and he, he actually says... Four things there. He says, uh, afflicted, you, you could probably um, better translate that, uh, we are pressed. Because literally that's what it means, to constrict, to press, to compress or to oppress. So, so if you take a clay jar and you press it, what's going to happen? You're going to crush it. Okay? And then he says, we, let me try and translate it like this. We, we're, we're at a loss, but we're not losers. <laughs> we're never completely losers. Um, and then he says, um, we are, we are per- persecuted literally means pursued. And Paul was often pursued in his ministry. And, and he's saying, you're pursued, we're pursued, but we're not abandoned, we're not forsaken. In other words, the devil, yes, the devil will pursue you. He hates you because you're reminding of Jesus, and he hates Jesus. You remind him of God and because you carry the image of God, and he hates God. And he cannot hurt God, so the only way he can get to God is to hurt you. So he's going to pursue you. But what Paul is saying is when he catches up with you, he won't find you alone. He'll find someone who's stronger than him that is with you and in you. Because greater is he who is in us than he was in the world. And then he says, um, we, are, um, we are struck down but not destroyed. Yes, sometimes, what happens when you, when you take a clay pot and you throw it down on the ground? It shatters. But Paul says, this is the amazing thing of the gospel. Yes, we are weak. We are fragile as human beings. We're mortal. But in all four of those things, he mentions firstly the the seemingly overwhelming force applied to something that is fragile and frail that should cause it to break on the one hand. But then, unexpectedly, the expected result does not come. There's a power, there's a grace that protects us in the midst of those overwhelming forces against us. Protects us from the unexpected outcome. So, and, and he says that, that shows people that it's God at work in our lives. And he says that shows it in everything. He says this, is the, this, is, this should be and this is the normal experience of Christians in everything, not just in some things, in everything, yes, there should be levels of discomfort, levels of pressure, things in our lives that we know we cannot handle by ourselves, where we constantly have to rely on God, and where people look at us and they scratch their heads and they say, how on earth is he making it? How on earth is she handling that? They, they shouldn't be able to deal with that. They should crack, they should crush, they should, they should be broken. And yet, they're not. They fall down, but they're struck down, but they're not destroyed. They press, but they're not crushed. 
What, what's going on in their lives? What's, what, what's your secret? And then you can de- share your secret sauce with them and say, yes, I'm a jar of clay, but there's a treasure inside of me. There's, there's, yes, I'm a fragile earthen vessel, but there's all-surpassing power, greater power than anything else in, in creation inside of me. It's not my power. I'm just a container, the vessel carrying it. So, um, this is Paul's universal experience in everything because this is not an unusual experience, but God's modus operandi, his usual way of working in everyone and in everything. And he in fact says so in 1 Corinthians. He says to the Corinthians, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the things that are, the, the things that are despised, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Can you see what Paul is saying? He's saying God intentionally chooses things that are weak and fragile, that do not appear impressive, so that when those things carry His power, His glory, His value, that no flesh, no human being can boast before Him. That people cannot look at you and say, wow, you know, I'm impressed with you. Then they look at you and say, wow, you must have a great God. (laughs) Because you're not impressive at all, and yet, and yet, there's great power at work in your life. We see this in David and Goliath. David was a, I mean, David was the eighth, the, 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 the runt of the litter. He was the, 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 the eighth of, he was the last born of eight sons. When his brothers went to war with, with King Saul, only his oldest three brothers were old enough to go. And he was a boy. It says when Saul looked at him, he saw, we were reading it last night with the kids. Paul, uh, Saul saw that he was a boy. And he was so young that even his, uh, even, even the, uh, you know, um, the, the, the other four of his older brothers were too young to go to battle. Only the oldest three were old enough to go to battle. And he was the very youngest. And he goes out. I mean, when Saul puts on his armor, he sort of disappears in it. He's like, I can hardly move in this. You know, take it off. And he goes out, a boy who's probably barely a teenager, goes out with a stick and a sling in seeming weakness to meet this giant who was three meters tall. Three meters, that's higher than my hand. His, his armor weighed 60 kilograms. Some of you don't even weigh 60 kilograms. Goliath's armor weighed 60 kilograms. The tip of his spear was 7 kilograms. I mean, this guy was not just tall and skinny. He was tall and big. Massive power compared to David, the small boy who doesn't even have a sword and a shield in his hand. He comes with a stick and a stone. God delights in giving, bringing his victory through Weakness, so that it can be seen to be the victory of God and not the victory of man. Same thing with, with uh, not, not just with David and Goliath, the same thing with Israel and Egypt. Israel was a weak little nation. Israel was the, uh, Egypt was the superpower of the, days, uh, of the day, and yet God delivered Israel from Egypt. Same thing with Paul and the super apostles. God delighted to use Paul in his 
appearance of weakness. And in his weakness, it wasn't just appearance of weakness, it was weakness. Same with the Corinthians. I mean, we, we just read that in 1 Corinthians. So the problem is, like the Corinthians, we often want the power, but we want to look powerful. We want the life, but we don't want the death. We want the resurrection life, but we don't want the death. And we don't want the appearance of death and weakness. But here's the problem. If you avoid the weakness and the appearance of weakness, you are actually avoiding the gospel. Because the gospel is strength in weakness. It is resurrection life in death. And that, that is the reason it's there. You know, so here's the thing. I mean, when you look at yourself and you see weakness in yourself, when you see yourself as frail and fragile and breakable and a jar of clay, an earthen vessel, you can say, oh, you know, I cannot minister. You know, I'm, I'm too weak. Or you can say, God knows how to draw a straight line with a crooked pen. Yes, I'm a crooked pen. God can draw a straight line with me. Yes, I'm a fragile vessel. God can carry great power in me. In fact, he delights to carry great power in fragile vessels. I mean, Rochelle and I, beginning of this month, 11th of August, we've been married 20 years. And you can cheer for Rochelle, not for me. <laughs> but if you ask Rochelle and I, we're not very impressive as spouses. <laughs> we're very ordinary. We're not the best spouses in the world. We're, you know, just to give an idea, you know, Rochelle, Rochelle comes from a, a broken family. Her parents were divorced when she was relatively young, when she, when she was still a kid. My parents are still married, but, you know, their marriage also wasn't great. Uh, and, and we came into our marriage with great brokenness and very bad ways of dealing with conflict. <laughs> You know, she's colored, so coloreds are very passionate, you know. <laughs> they, their way of dealing with conflict is you just vent it. You let it rip, you know. I'm Afrikaner. I'm very reserved and drawn back. And my dad especially, you know, he, he, he used, and I'm an introvert, you know, he used the tortoise method of conflict management, you know, of dealing with conflict. You know, just, just withdraw into your shell. You know, so Rochelle vents and I withdraw into my shell. <laughs> and the more I draw, withdraw into my shell, the more infuriated she becomes and the more she vents. And, you know, despite those weaknesses, despite also, I mean, we came into our, our, our marriage broken, you know, emotion, with lots of emotional scars and brokenness. I mean, you can imagine, you know, coming from broken families, you know, families that did their best, but that were broken, you know. If we had to look at our marriage and, and, you know, so many times, I mean, we, we walk in and lead worship, come to lead worship or I come to preach and we haven't had a great morning, you know. We've had conflict and so on. And, and we could easily say to ourselves, oh, who are we, you know, to want to lead worship? Or who are we want to want to preach the gospel? We don't even consistently apply the gospel in our own lives. And now we want to tell other people about the gospel. But God delights to use us in our brokenness. Don't let your brokenness, don't let the fact that you are broken, that you are, are sinful, that you are flawed, that, that you are not always committed as you should be, don't let that prevent you from preaching the gospel, from trying to live the gospel. Don't, don't hide that either. Say, I am. This is who I am. I'm broken. I have this great power, this great treasure inside of me. But 
It's a treasure that's in contrast with me, but allow the contrast, my brokenness, my fragility, my weakness, my sin, allow it to show you even more clearly the power of the treasure. Because the, tre- the power doesn't come from me. Um, so the shape of gospel ministry must reflect the shape of the gospel message. Strength in weakness. Resurrection life through death. Jesus died in humiliation, in weakness. He hung there on the cross, naked. The epitome of weakness and vulnerability and frailty. And yet, that weakness, that death in weakness and humiliation released the greatest power this world has ever seen. A power that is so great that it overcame not only the spiritual powers of Satan and death, but will ultimately overcome all the powers of destruction, even the physical powers. And it will create a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. And if the gospel itself, the form, the shape of the gospel itself is strength, great strength, but through utter weakness, resurrection life, but through Shameful death. If that is the shape of the gospel and the shape of the gospel message, then Paul is saying gospel ministry must have that same shape as the gospel message and as the gospel itself. And that's why he talks about, um, let me maybe just read that again in verse 10. Always carrying in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. For we who, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So he's saying there, literally, we just translated more literally that verse 10. He says, we are always carrying around in our body the dying of Jesus. He doesn't say the death of Jesus. He literally says the dying of Jesus. We are always carrying around in our bodies the dying of Jesus. How did Jesus die? How did this process of Jesus dying happen? He died on the cross, right? Do you understand now that Paul is saying exactly the same thing Jesus was saying in scriptures like Luke 9 verse 23. And he said, Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. In other words, what what, what he's saying is that we must, the form of the Christian life is the form of the gospel. It's dying, taking up your cross, carrying around your cross, the dying of Jesus, so that you can experience the life of Jesus, the resurrection life of Jesus. So that the, the, the life of Jesus may be manifest in your body. The life of Jesus is resurrection life. Now, just two things here. One part we like, the other part we don't like. The part we like is this. The life of Jesus is resurrection life. In other words, it's life out of death. It's life that has already overcome death. It's life that has already passed through death. And therefore, death has no more hold on it. Death has no, no more influence on it. In other words, resurrection life is the only life that will never end, that will never result in death, because it's already passed through death. It's eternal life. The life of Jesus is eternal life because it's resurrection life. We like that. 
But what we don't like is the fact that we have to pass through with Jesus. We have to experience the dying of Jesus, pass through the death to experience his life, pass through his death to experience him, partake in his death so we can partake in his life. If you avoid the death, avoid taking up your cross, avoid carrying around in your body the dying of Jesus, you avoid the resurrection life of Jesus. In other words, what, what Paul is saying here is, and he, and he says very often that, that the cross and the death of the cross, we died with Christ so that we can live with Christ. It's not only the cross and the death on the cross is not only the decisive event in our past. The cross and the death of Jesus is also a continuing experience in our present Does that make sense? You have died with Christ, but you are also dying with Christ. You are constantly carrying around in your body the dying of Christ as you take up your uh, the dying of Christ as you take up your cross and follow Him. You can you have to die daily. Daily you have to take up your cross. Uh, being given over is the same word used in the Gospels for Jesus being given over to the to Pilate and the guys to be crucified. As um, there's one guy I read, uh, uh, Moyer Hubbard, said it this way. He says, as Christ's death leads to the manifestation of resurrection life, so to Paul's embodiment of Christ's death leads to the manifestation of resurrection life. Then he says, Paul's message was the cross preached. Paul's life was the cross lived. And the same should be for us. Our message should be the cross preached. Our lives should be the cross lived. Taking up our cross and following Jesus. Does, do you understand now what we mean when we say live the gospel? We lo- love talking about live the gospel, love the people, obey the spirit. This what it, is what it means to live the gospel. Amazing, astounding power, but in weakness. Um, so, the gospel-shaped life will be gospel-shaped. A life shaped by the gospel will be shaped like the gospel, including death into resurrection life, weakness into all-surpassing power. And when you see your suffering and frailty in light of this, of the gospel, it doesn't cause you to lose heart, it causes you to take heart, because your frailty, your weakness, your brokenness, your fallenness is not an obstacle to the gospel. The gospel is designed to work most best and shine most brightly when it's out of that place of weakness. So I want to share one last thing with you, and this is a very short point, so don't worry. Just a minute or two. The last verse um, that we read, verse 12, it says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. What does Paul mean by that? Firstly, he was just saying that, that death, the death of the gospel, sharing in the death of Christ, leads to life for the person dying the death. So when Paul dies, Paul experiences life. But now he's saying it goes further than that. When Paul dies, those that Paul ministers to experience life. So what is he saying then? This is the good news. Why is this paradox good news? The gospel requires death to produce life. So as the gospel requires death to produce life, so our gospel ministry requires death to produce life. But here's the point. Here's the good news. 
the life that that death produces is disproportionate. What does it mean? It's not just one-to-one. Think about it this way. The life that the gospel, that Jesus produced in the gospel by dying, was disproportionate. It wasn't just like Jesus died, and then Jesus was resurrected, so that Jesus lived. Yes, that's true, but that's not nearly the whole truth. Jesus died, and then Jesus was resurrected, so that not only Jesus lived, but all of us lived. The life that Jesus' death produced was completely disproportionate. It wasn't just one-to-one, one death producing one life. It was one death producing gazillions of life. And Paul says that the death that we die, the sacrifice we make and the deaths that we die in gospel ministry is disproportionate. You die, but not only do you live through that dying, but the people you minister to experience life. So your death produces life in you, but it also produces life in everyone that you minister to. Isn't that amazing? There's a multiplication of life that happens as we die. And that's what the gospel says. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, what happens? It bears much fruit. And not only much fruit, not just one fruit, much fruit. But each one of those fruits contains another seed that can fall into the, world, to the ground and die and produce much fruit. That contains more seed that can fall into the ground and die and produce much fruit. Can you see the powerful... Can you see now why Paul talks about all-surpassing power of the gospel? It's not just power in terms of strength, but it's multiplication of power. It's amazing power. Are you encouraged? <laughs> Are you encouraged that, that your frailty, your weakness, the death that you have to die is not for nothing? It's not an obstacle to the gospel. In fact, the gospel needs that. It needs your weakness. Don't hide your weakness. Embrace it. Celebrate it like Paul did. Your weakness, your death, your sickness, your sin, your frailty, your failure makes Jesus look Good. It makes the gospel look powerful. Amen. Let's stand. just thank you Lord for each life Lord represented here today Lord and every person Lord watching over YouTube Lord God and and joining us digitally Lord who's bringing their weakness before you Lord thank you Lord that you receive that weakness as a sacrifice and that you use that weakness Lord and our our mortal bodies Lord these earthen vessels Lord that are weak and fragile thank you that you receive them and that you use them our minds, Lord, that are, that are far from perfect, Lord. Our lives, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that, that many people are bringing their past, Lord, things in the past, Lord, things that they are ashamed of, things that, that, 
that they even thought would disqualify them from being used by you. Thank you that they can just bring them before you this morning and give them to you and how you can use them, Lord, and use, Lord, even that brokenness and that sin and that abuse or whatever it is, Lord, as a testimony to put your the power of your gospel on display. And I just thank you, Lord, that you say, Lord, that you receive every bit of our brokenness, our weakness, and that you will use it. You will teach us to use it in our gospel ministry to bring glory to your name. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come, Lord, and bring healing, Lord. But thank you, Lord, that even before you bring healing, Lord, our weakness already highlights your strength. Our brokenness already emphasizes your healing. Our death already highlights your life, your resurrection life. Let it be so in every one of our lives in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.